So Gil, actually, before we start talking about the specifics of your discoveries and your hypotheses, let's talk a little bit about why it's important. Because uh, before people tune out from this bonus episode, because they say, yeah, I'm not that interested in the Bible or something like that. Like, let's try to convince them that they should be. Because I really want to note here for folks who don't know that you and I are both what we could call some version of secular. I mean, like, we are not people who are reading the Bible because we're finding our faith in it. And yet you and I are both intensely, Oof. intensely interested in the Bible. And I, I want our listeners out there who say, oh, the Bible, I'm not that interested because I'm not religious. I want, I want to say for them why we think it's so important. I find the Bible fascinating because, first of all, I love history. And here you have a direct connection to what people, actual people, were thinking and feeling 2,500 years ago. And we can get a sense of who they are and the stories that they created, you know, regardless of faith. These are the most iconic stories the world has ever seen. Like your U.S. president. What is his name? Joe Biden. Yeah, Joe, short for... Oh, Joseph. Joseph, Joseph Biden, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Joseph, so, he, so his name has been invented by the biblical author of Genesis, a person whose life we can trace and whose soul we can understand and appreciate. Through his characters, get to know him. You know, it's like, we don't know anything about Shakespeare. Who was Shakespeare? Can you get like a sense what he was like, or Homer, like Homerus? Here... We can. <laughs> we have a window into their souls through, I don't know, some, a lot of luck and historical luck. The people who are the biblical authors of Genesis, their personal lives and feelings are just like all over the most famous stories in the world. I find this mind boggling. Yeah, you know, as you were talking about Joe Biden and Joseph Biden, I was thinking about that story of Pope John the 23rd, you know, he was the Pope during Vatican II, and he was very much uh, somebody who wanted to reach out to other people. And I think there's a story where a group of rabbis comes to meet with him. And of course, there's been this like, you know, terrible history between the Catholic Church and the Jews, and these rabbis come to meet with him. And his actual name, Pope John the 23rd, but his real name, his, his given name was Giuseppe, which is Joseph. And he met these rabbis and he said, I am Joseph, your brother which just makes like chills go down my spine. Wow. You know, this idea wow. that this, so it's not only that the name, but it's that these ideas, these this notion, right? This story that says that a person was mistreated by his brothers. In, in, in this particular case, it's sort of a reversal, but the story that a person yeah. was mistreated by his brothers and terrible things happened. And then at a certain point, there's a reconciliation and the words are, I am Joseph, your brother. And we can use that same story thousands of years later to, wow. you know, in, in a situation of, of, of reconciling these two religions that have been at war with each other for so long, or one is, in particular, one has been doing wrong to the other. It, it just feels to me like that's something in the world that we shouldn't just flush down the toilet because we don't believe in the theology that we imagine that those people believed in, which, by the way, parenthetically, we're going to see... They probably didn't believe in it either. Mm -hmm. So much of that uh, library of the Bible is, uh, is a literature. That's explicitly what it is. Not stories uh, to make you feel bad about yourself or fear God or, you know, to prove his power, but actual literature written in the style of their day, which was biblical literature. 
God is in these stories, like, like, like deities are in the ancient Greek stories. And many of these stories in the Bible are all-time great literature. Genesis is a familial, communal, quote-unquote, origin story. They had a calamity. They had communal infighting before the sack and after the sack. All kinds of different peoples with different ideologies, with different beliefs, with different stories had to find a way to live together in Egypt, put their past differences behind them and genuinely open a new leaf. And this is the book of Genesis in general and the tale of Joseph in particular. Uh-huh. They're like us if we were living back then we would prefer to be with this gang in these times. Opening a new leaf as a community based on forgiveness and mutual aid. This is in the Bible and I think this is just great to have as your, you know, something to carry in your backpack as a cultural uh, baggage. For me, for sure, the history is is a driver, right? I love the idea that we can discover the real history and that's exciting for all kinds of reasons that we can talk about. And then I think beyond that though, to discover the literature that came out of that history. Like when we look at the Bible, we can both find history in it and we can uncover history in it, but we can also for sure find the literature of that period of time like you say, to understand how these people thought and what they were thinking about and what they were trying to do. A lot of that, and this is where I'm kind of, I don't know, resentful may be too strong of a word, but I'm resentful about the Bibles having been almost trapped in this world of religion and theology because it has hidden from us the literature and the mythology that we can tap into and say, wow, it's not that this was about a God that I don't believe in. This was about people that I do believe in, you know, and, and about yeah. and about us. And we can really kind of say, hey, look, we can read Greek mythology. It's great. But we also have yeah. Jewish mythology and it's also great. And yeah. let's see what we can make out of it. I think it's very well said. I think it's just as good as Greek mythology. The story of Joseph, some of the stories of the patriarchs, the binding of Isaac. These are, liter- like, literarily speaking, I read these stories, I have chills in my spine. They're just like written so well. They are masterfully dramatic, masterfully. How the conflicts emerge, the resolution, and the homages to known folk tales. All that is top-notch. And of course, later you had 2,500 years of, you know, a cast of uh, writers and theologists and rabbis whose only job was to just read this and create new, co- new content <laughs> based on that content. And obviously they, you know, came up with all kinds of things that we don't agree with. But like on my podcast, I try to just, I, I just ignore the past 2,500 years and focus on the stories and how they came to be. What's like their archaeology? I failed at Bible in in Israel, a school. <laughs> in the, Me too, by the uh, way. Bagruyot, whatever. You also. <laughs> yeah, I was in Israel for high school, and I actually also did very, very poorly in my Bible classes. I actually turned out to do very well in the final exam called the Bagrut exam. I did pretty well on it mm-hmm. because I had read Richard Elliott Friedman's Who Wrote the Bible a few months before that. And all of a sudden I got really excited about the Bible. And so I read a lot of things and I was trying to figure out, is this stuff correct that he's ta- saying? And and I ended up getting enough Bible in my head that I actually did okay on the on the test. But it was only because I, I was able to access it the, 
the way that we're talking about. It's really important to understand the Bible as kind of a library that that it's if you think about it as a single work of literature, you're actually not thinking about it the right way. What it is, is a library. And and by the way, I think there are theories actually that the reason why the Bible really kind of came into a version of its final form was because the Library of Alexandria wanted to get the holy books of the Jews. And so they had to figure out what were their holy books and they had to kind of put them together for the first time. So I don't know if that's, that's correct. Oh, nice. I, I like it too. Um, so if you kind of see the Bible as something like that, that emerges over time, but really what it is, is a kind of a library that got sort of smushed together in some way to try to create over time some kind of single work. I think you can start to understand a little better what we're talking about here. You know, I think a, a good analogy to the biblical authors could be film directors. Like we know that a Quentin Tarantino film is different from a Christopher Nolan film or a Spielberg film, you know, in terms of uh, storytelling technique, themes or visuals, everything, really. The experience is inherently different, even if they told the same story or even if we stitched clips together from all kinds of movies from different directors and put them in order that makes some sense. We still could never mistake this new edited, rearranged film as one organic creation, because we know this medium. There must be a movie that's made out of clips of other movies. Like that just feels like something that must exist. Like I can't think of a specific one that I know of, but it seems like something that people would do in, in film school, you know, just as a experiment, right? And like you say, if somebody did that with movies by all kinds of famous directors, Steven Spielberg, Quentin Tarantino, we could totally see the difference. We, every single one of us would, would notice that. We might appreciate it as a work of art that intermixes all of those movie genres, right. but we would know that they weren't actually created by the same person. We would also see the editorial hand of the person yeah. who stitched them together. They did a good job, but it's also absolutely obvious to somebody from the time. And I kind of feel like part of the understanding of what happened to Judaism over the last 2,000 years includes that people didn't really speak Hebrew that well, didn't speak it natively. And I think that we can, we can say that the rabbis, I think the rabbis really spoke Hebrew well, the early rabbis, like the way that I speak Hebrew well. Like I speak Hebrew fine. I can read Hebrew well. I've translated novels, but I'm not sensitive to it like you are. And I don't notice what to you jumps off the page which is just the obviousness of the different voices and the different genres. Like it's, it's, it's good that there are now millions of people that speak Hebrew in that way that can see it. Um, I don't think when Eliezer Ben Yehuda a hundred plus years ago was saying that I'm going to revive the Hebrew language as a spoken language. I don't think that there were probably people who opposed him on the grounds that if we make Hebrew a spoken language again, all of these secular Jews are going to notice that the Bible is actually stitched together from these different, like nobody thought of it, but it turns out that it's true. That's, that's a fascinating like accident of history butterfly effect kind of thing to me. I think maybe a good way to just divide things up in a way that makes sense, we can just take Aside, put aside the Genesis and Exodus. These are retellings of actual historical events in a symbolic way through the genre of uh, an ancient tale. One uh, specific concrete example is the world-famous story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Amorah, 
So for 2,500 years, we've been told by, you know, religious zealots that people like you and I, and maybe a large portion of your audience as well, that Sodom represents us and our sins in some way. Well, it's actually the opposite. It turns out that it's actually about them. <laughs> Sodom, Sodom is a cautionary tale about the fall of Jerusalem because of extremism and divisiveness. Yeah, like as you're saying that, I'm actually thinking about us and the relationship to the Holocaust, which was which was about, let's say, 75 years ago. But even thinking about, let's say, 50 years ago, 25 years after the Holocaust, there was a tremendous amount of literature coming out of that experience where people are either telling their story, nonfiction, you know, Elie Wiesel, etc., and there's a lot of fiction as well, where people are writing stories and trying to make sense out of this experience. So if we're thinking about what was basically the Holocaust of their time, the most calamitous thing that ever happened to these people, the idea that for the next hundred years they would be trying to process that experience through a variety yeah, of storytelling means yeah. makes all the sense in the world. If, if you make fun of these stories, it's like making fun of the, the story of Achilles because his mom didn't put his heel all the way out inside the river. No, this is a legend, this is a myth. And if you dismiss ancient stories just because of uh, these, uh, you know, uh, 21st century plot hole thinking, then I think you just miss out. They're not lying or, you know, pulling a trick on us. This is the story that they're trying to tell. Uh, you know, I always like to use this example for different things, but if you kind of watched Quentin Tarantino's movie Inglorious Bastards, like we all know that that didn't happen. He doesn't claim that it happened. It's a really cool story, a revenge fantasy about that, right? But you can imagine like 200 years from now, for some reason, a lot of the stuff has been lost and somebody finds this movie and they say, oh, th th this not either this happened or they say like this author, Quentin Tarantino, he really thought that this happened, but he never thought that, it, you know, in, in other words, we only feel betrayed by, by discovering that this story wasn't real. We only feel betrayed because once upon a time, somebody thought that it was real, but, it, but the person who thought that it was real wasn't the original author. And he may, very well may not have been telling people that it was real. Everybody then, then knew that it was a novel, you know, basically. They had to know because this is our very, the story of Joseph will refresh people's minds in a, like in a moment. There are some very specific events that everybody in that time knew. They were very famous, very famous people. Things that were very tragic and very important and very big happened to them. And they were recorded by all kinds of people. So it's just like it was obviously intentional. Well, let's talk a little bit in detail about the story of Joseph, because you've really been thinking about it. It's the kind of thing that you end your first season of the podcast on. One thing that I really want to like double down on with Joseph is that his name, for those of us who speak English, we don't hear it in quite the same way because we hear Joseph. But if you say in Hebrew, Yosef, that sounds almost identical. Like I'm thinking like, what would be the English name that would really capture it? Maybe something like his name was Addendum. His name was added. I mean, the it, it's really clear that his name means added on. And you could say, I mean, the story says, why is his name Joseph? Because, you know, I think because God added another son for Rachel or whatever yeah. it might have been. But yeah. it, it's so obvious that 
it makes you laugh when you think of it that the author of this extra story that you're talking about that everybody would have known at that time wasn't true in the in the factual sense named his character add-on or addendum yeah extension and also he was writing the story of joseph about a person in charge of taxing his own community for the pharaoh being in communication with the pharaoh and in charge of the community and apparently that was the status and the role of the scribes in egypt so baruch ben neria the scribe he's jeremiah's scribe his actual position in what actually historians tell us would be exactly what is portrayed symbolically in the in the story of joseph artistically and psychologically and emotionally how it combines both the lives of Jeremiah and what happened to him and the, and the story of the author because this is how you write literature you put yourself into each and every character yeah I'm thinking about how Bill Clinton has been writing these thriller novels recently I don't know if you know about these but really he's been oh. co-authoring with James Patterson these novels about a president you know and about how a president's oh, daughter oh. was kidnapped or whatever you know and, and I haven't read them. an awesome president I'm, I'm sure you know I haven't read them <laughs> but but you're just kind of like yeah you know if you so let's say that you didn't know that Bill Clinton was president you know but you picked up this novel in 200 years you would read it and you'd be like this guy really seems to know what it's like to be a president you know right and Right. And, um, <laughs> you know, if you if you think about that uh, Baruch ben Neria, who we should talk about, it was, you know, a kind of official in in Egypt. And he wrote this novella and you kind of like, yeah, he really seems to know what he's talking about in terms of how the workings of the Egyptian government are. Yeah. In your podcast, the way that I experience it. And uh, I'm like a mega fan, you know, like a stan of, of your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that. What's really special about it for me is that you're coming at this from the perspective of a writer and that I feel like you discover things in it because you say, hey, I'm a writer and I know what it's like to write a piece of fiction and I can see how I put my own voice and my own experience in my writing. And so I'm trying to now do like the reverse engineering of this and saying, well, let's assume that whoever wrote it put their voice and experience into it. So if I can kind of understand and like abstract from these these episodes to what is it really saying and what kind of experience is it describing, then I can look around at the historical characters that I know about and say, well, who would have fit that? description. And it may be that we don't have a record of that historical character. And so we just don't know. But this is not original to you. This is what the scholars have been saying for the last century or two, basically, that the people who we do know their names, the people who wrote major works in the later part of the Bible, specifically Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and some of the people that are around them, those are those are the people who wrote a whole huge book with their name on it. It stands <laughs> to reason that they might have written some of the other books. So I, I just want to lay out a little bit of the history there because there's this particular important period of time that runs from about the year 700 BCE, 722 BCE, when the Northern Kingdom of Israel is destroyed, to the year 586 BCE, which is about 150 years later when the southern kingdom of Judah is destroyed. The first, the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom is destroyed by the Babylonians who kind of took over Mesopotamia from the Assyrians. The way, here's how I understand it. In that period, before that period, there were two kingdoms, a northern kingdom called Israel, dominated by the tribe of Ephraim, 
And in the south, there was the kingdom of Judah dominated by the group called Judah. There were these two kingdoms. They probably had a little bit of literature, a little bit of stories in each kingdom. Writing wasn't really well developed yet by most of that time before 722. Uh, but if it was developed, and this is what Israel Finkelstein, for example, says, he's an archaeologist, that writing and, and culture was much more developed in the northern kingdom than in the southern kingdom. So probably what happens is that the northern kingdom is destroyed. There's a tremendous number of refugees from the north that come to the south. We have archaeological evidence of that. And this is the year 722. The king is Hezekiah, and the prophet at that time is Isaiah. And we have this kind of... Uh, necessary effort to combine these two populations. And so there's some amount of literature that gets written or rewritten or remixed at that time to try to say, hey, we were always the same people all along. You know, we're creating a new group. You can think of that as in, happening in America. You know, I, I think a lot about like the show Hamilton and it's all about these attempts to try to wow. say, oh yeah, we we're all different colors. We're all different races, but we can find this, we can retell this old story about Alexander Hamilton in a way that makes us kind of feel reconnected in some yeah. new way. Yeah, even though we know that it isn't the way it went down. Right, right. And, <laughs> you know, you have access to Wikipedia. Right. And, and so that process goes on in some way for about 100 years, 150 years. And then is this year 586 that you're talking about with Jeremiah as the, the main prophet at that time. And under threat of the Babylonians, there's this like kind of crumbling of the this new kind of combined kingdom in the south in Jerusalem. And ultimately, it's destroyed by the Babylonians. And there are people that have been warning, you know, you, we are going to get destroyed. I mean, think about what's going on in Ukraine today. You know, it's like people are saying the Russians are right wow. there. They're coming in. And other people are like, no, they're not going to come in. No, don't worry about it. They're not. Right. right? And, and so, right. some, you know, Jeremiah is like the kind of guy who's like, they're coming. They're coming. Right. And that makes him, that drives it makes him crazy. crazy. That right? would drive anyone crazy. Because nobody's listening to him. And they put, throw him in a pit. Wow. We'll get to the pit. You know, but wow. they, right? they, they, they just hate this guy. And he's, and he's probably eventually like literally loses his mind because he's you know and he eventually does go crazy and, and he has this assistant named Baruch Beneria who and I'd love for you to talk about more because it seems like he he probably really loved Jeremiah early on and he was his assistant and then I, I sort of imagine that Jeremiah eventually is so crazy that he becomes mean and at a certain point there's a split between Jeremiah and Baruch and maybe that explains some of the literature that we ultimately see in Genesis. So I really would love for you to like develop your kind of theory of what's going on around 586 when the Southern Kingdom ends up being destroyed. Yeah. You know, I imagine it like being in Berlin in 1945 as the Russians are coming and as the Western allies are coming and everybody knows that the city is going to go down. You can't stop it. The people are hungry, there's chaos, people are trying to flee to the other side, get out of the city, they're arrested. And for me, it probably felt like the end of the world for them. And Jeremiah is at the center of it. He was trying to get people to surrender, the soldiers to surrender. And for that, he's thrown by his brothers, metaphorical brothers, he's thrown into a waterless pit. And this is later portrayed in the story of Joseph when he is betrayed by his metaphorical brothers, or in that story they're not metaphorical, and also ridiculed, just like Jeremiah. His prophecy is discarded, just like Jeremiah's, thrown into a waterless pit. Everybody knows Jeremiah was in the pit. 
It's, it's like it's like in America, everyone knows that Martin Luther King was in the Birmingham jail. You know, like it's just like this becomes a story that everybody knows. And so if you got a story a few years later about somebody who was in the Birmingham jail, but it wasn't Martin Luther King, you know that he stands for Martin Luther King. And the person who becomes the head of this rich and prosperous community of Hebrew immigrants in Egypt, the most famous person of his time, that would be Baruch Benria, a scribe, an author, a writer. He's the celebrity <laughs> and the president of the community, not the Jeremiah, the angry prophet, but the writer who put everything down into text. And since so much of both of their lives is clearly part of the stories of Genesis, and because of the similar writing style in the book of Jeremiah and in Genesis, specific expressions, ideologies, character traits, and also because it fits so nicely with what scholars have been telling us about the chronology of the writing of the Bible, then for me, this is more than enough to give this person, Baruch Ben another look. He became a great man, a very, very famous man. We haven't heard of him, but he was famous for 2,000 years after his death, recorded in all kinds of history, statues of him. His grave became, his tomb became uh, a place that people uh, go to. And a lot of biblical books, four biblical books were written in his, in his name. So he became widely, widely successful. It wasn't for him being, you know, a regular scribe to Jeremiah. This is not it. He clearly accomplished so much more. And since there's so many evidence that he in fact wrote Genesis, his entire life is in this book. I think that's what made him so famous. Like just to understand the history a little bit more clearly, we're using 586 as a kind of a marker. Some of this stuff happened a few years before, some a few years after. But around that period of time, the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. And some group of Israelites or Judeans go up to Babylonia after that, and some group goes down to Egypt. Can you say a little bit about who went to Babylonia and who went to Egypt and why? You know, a lot has been made, and rightfully so, of the Hebrew exiles in Babylon. But for some reason, the rival community in Egypt uh, has been, I don't know, very much ignored, I feel. And that's the community that is more like us. You know, they were the progressives, I guess, for lack of a better word, while the hardliners, the conservatives, you know, the neocons, <laughs> they were the ones who decided against all rational thought to rebel against the Babylonians. And a lot of people paid with their lives and a lot of elites paid by by being sent packing to Babylon. And I think there's a lot to learn about the Hebrew immigrants in Egypt after the destruction of Jerusalem. They wrote a lot of biblical books. They assimilated into Pharaonic Egypt and then even more under Hellenistic rule. They were invited by Alexander the Great actually to set up two quarters, two whole quarters in the new city that he built, Alexandria. And we have a lot of their internal correspondence also. You know, they're not the kind of people to look back nostalgically at the good old times they spent in Jerusalem. <laughs> no, not at all. They're very, very happy in Egypt. Egypt is their safe heaven. It's the, it's the conservatives in Babylon who can't 
let go of Jerusalem and the temple. The Hebrews in Egypt, they're not thinking about Jerusalem. They're not worried about Jerusalem. They don't care about Jerusalem. They're not writing anything about Jerusalem, about Moses, about Exodus. We see that they pray to many gods. They have temples with all kinds of deities in there. And they might be the most successful Hebrew community ever until, you know, uh, American uh, Jewry <laughs> stepped onto the world stage. And, and what's interesting there is to start to think about, and this is beyond where the podcast is yet, but I think about this character, Ezra, who comes back from the Babylonian exile much later, and he is theorized by certain biblical scholars as the person who did a major edit of the Bible into mm. the kind of form closer to what we have today. And I really wonder whether, in a sense, he's taking the stories that were written in Egypt and the stories that were written in Babylonia and stitching them together. And in fact, right, there's a legend that Baruch ben Neria was a teacher of Ezra. That can't be, the timing doesn't work. But the notion that he that these two important people had a connection between them is also one of these like Easter eggs that sort of says like, hey, actually what we're telling you is that these were the two main authors of the Bible and they didn't actually know right. each other. But when we say that they know each other, we're kind of signaling to you that there's a relationship between them. Right. And I always thought about it. And I think that I was guided to think about it this way by Richard Elliott Friedman and who wrote the Bible, that the the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom had their own independent stories. And after the destruction of the North, when they came together in 722, somebody we wove together the stories. And your podcast is making me feel like much more likely a vast number of these stories were actually written much, much later than that, you know, after 586. And, yeah. and I'm wondering whether you think, you know, there were some stories that were actually very, very ancient, which ones those might have been. Does it matter? It's, it's hard to tell. Uh, I think that if we even zoom out a little bit, we can see that there is a very uh, straight continuum of the evolution of writing and storytelling around the ancient world, the ancient Near East, that Israel was just this little dot, unimportant dot. So this is a process that has been going on for years of collecting ancient stories from everywhere and spreading them everywhere. And then you have a scribe that collects these stories and just adapts them to his own people and his own agenda. And this is basically preserving, I used the analogy in the podcast, like those capsules that uh, you send into space with, uh, ancient, with, with music and uh, thoughts and ideas and stuff like that for like a billion years and somebody will find them. And, and I think this analogy works very well for the book of Genesis. Uh, all kinds of Mesopotamian tales, Sumerian tales, Babylonian tales, Assyrian tales, and just adapted and fit into a narrative that fits them creates a whole new book based on that. And this is like an homage. This is not, uh, you know, plagiarism. Right. Different people have different reactions to discovering all this, right? Some people feel a sense of betrayal. Like, 
oh, this is all a lie. This is all not really, the Bible wasn't true. It didn't even happen. It wasn't even written at the time that it purports to be written in. I, I feel terrible. I, I don't want to be Jewish anymore. You know, I don't want, I want to be. No, the opposite. Right? Now I, I want to be I Jewish. You and I feel the opposite, right? Like you <laughs> and I feel like this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. I feel wow. much more connected to this now because I wow. feel like these are people like us. I feel like, oh, I don't have to accept some some of the books, some of the stuff in here that I think is horrible. Like, oh, that was just maybe added by somebody who was trying to change the the original um, philosophy. And actually, the original philosophy was one that was trying to say, hey, can we all just get along now because we've been conquered and we don't have to be fighting with each other anymore? Like, I... I want to just go back to that and say, like, yeah, wow, we have an ancient history of people wanting to try to help people get along better. Right. In a world, in a very violent world, yep. much more violent than today, they wrote stories about brothers fighting with brothers constantly and then forgiving each other, embracing and helping each other out after calamity. When we think about the modern implications of this, it's like, I understand how if you are a religious Jew and you see yourself, you know, correctly or incorrectly, I mean, you know, in my view, it's not correct to see the history this way, but I, I respect that people can see it this way and to say, like, I am a descendant of a particular chain of tradition and my chain starts where this book, the Bible, is a completed work of literature. And so I have to accept it completely. And I have to accept it as having a singular theology and a single story. And that, you know, I understand that it can cause people great anguish to think, oh, it wasn't really that way. But for those of us, and I think it's the majority of Jews and probably the majority of non-Jews that don't really believe that, they don't really believe that God gave the Torah on Mount Sinai and every word of it was dictated to Moses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But actually do believe that somehow this is the work of human beings over a long period of time. Then I think to really get inside of that, instead of just saying that as like a slogan, oh, I believe this was work of human being, but to really get inside of the details of what, what actually happened and how the theology kept changing and they kept kind of re-editing the book in order to make the whole thing appear as if it has a single theology, but it really doesn't. And so how do you then, it really is like archaeology. Like, how do you start to, to, to dig through the layers and then find, and, and I don't think that the answer, I'm curious what you think. Like, I don't think that the answer is that we're going to dig into some layer. We're finally going to find a layer that appeals to us. And we're going to say, oh, this is the new Torah. This is the new basis for, I think instead what we have to do is somehow accept this layered document as our history. And really what's important is what we do moving forward rather than, you know, kind of trying to attach ourselves to some very particular thing that happened in the past. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would also add that the opposite reaction of dismissing the stories as, you know, silly and feeling that they belong to other people, you know, the intensely religious people. I think this is a, this is a shame. I know... I know I felt this way in the past, but now I feel it's as much mine as classic movies, classic literature, and even more because for me specifically, it's written in my language. 
you, you and I both have great reverence for the biblical scholars that are out there. And here I mean the academic biblical scholars who are doing things like philology and they're seeing how the language of different periods. And at some point, like, I want to really have this conversation with a bunch of uh, academic scholars, not where we're going to just defer to them, but where we're really going to like talk to each other and push back and say, have you considered this? And, you know, because I think that there's a lot that scholarship, that archaeology, that all these things bring. And I think, though, that there's also something that that maybe they don't bring and comes at it from the perspective of somebody who writes literature, who loves literature, who gets literature. And you're also coming to it from the perspective of somebody who speaks Hebrew every minute of your life. And I think it's also that there are certain prisms or certain, you know, windows that we have all been taught to read through. And even academic scholars don't always realize that they are seeing things that they've been taught to see because they have not yet really sat down and just read this stuff with a completely open mind. I've never worked in, uh, in academia, but a lot of people who do, and specifically I'm talking about researchers of the ancient world, the, the reality that they themselves describe is that of factions and clans, and you belong to the faction that your teacher belonged to, and then, you know, it's like a political divide, saying the opposite of what the person on the other side is saying. You know, it might be wrong, not because, you know, the truth is always in the middle and uh, bullshit like that, but because, because reacting to a reactionary point of view is not always the way to go. There are so many opportunities out there that I feel we need to open our minds to. Just a quick story. I was studying recently from the Talmud, there's this famous story about lighting the Hanukkah candles. And it says in the Talmud that the law is to light one candle for the whole house, but the mehadrin, meaning the people who want to do it even fancier, they light a candle for every person in the house. And then okay. there, there's a dispute between the House of Hillel and the House of Shammai, whether the even more amazing beautifying people <laughs> want to light one additional light each night or start with eight and then go down one each night. But okay. I was teaching this to a group of people. And I said, so look, when we look at this, the, the basic law of Hanukkah is just that you have to light one candle each night for the whole household. And this person mm. stopped me and said, where do you see that it says you have to light one candle each night? And I looked at it again, and all it says is that you have ah. to light one candle. And I was like, ah. even though I was in this class introducing them ah. to the idea that you just have to read carefully and not through the prism ah. that you've been taught, I it never occurred to me that maybe it doesn't say that it's just one candle for the whole holiday. And that that was coming from somebody who, you know, took took what I said seriously and actually just read it. And and so I think that there's like there's something to be said about this communal, you know, I would now that Israel has, you know, I don't know, 9 million native Hebrew speakers, most of them are not actually reading the Bible the way that you are. They they don't feel invited to, they don't know that they can. They, they That's right? correct. And what would happen if we unleashed those 9 million people on the Bible? Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. There there's a vacuum here that we can all step into. You know, we're trusting the experts, we're reading their material, but we shouldn't be passive consumers and just say amen and not even think for ourselves. You know, uh, in Greece, every young child learns at school about ancient Greek mythology and literature. And they're very proud to be associated with that, even though it has 
you know, genocide and rape and murder and all of that, they are proud to have it in their cultural arsenal. And uh, I just wish that we, that we could feel the same about our mythology and our ancient literature. Well, I think that's a really good note to end on for now. I, I cannot wait for season two for looking at Exodus and, and beyond. I, you know, your podcast has been so fun and enlightening for me, and I hope we'll be able to have more follow-on conversations as that unfolds. Yes, please. Yes, please. So thanks so much, Gil, for, for spending this time with me today. Thank you very much, Dan, for everything.